we saw athletes in a school cafeteria from the road where we were. They were fully covered. They had on long jackets, long pants. They had on what I thought were helmets and they were fighting with swords. And I remember my mom looking at me and saying, like, I have no idea what that is. But when you get to high school, I want you to try it out. And I feel like the rest is just kind of history. Hello. Welcome to At Home with Linda and Drew Scott, a show where we chat with artists, experts, dreamers, and doers about the impact that they're creating in the world. This is a place where we can explore what makes us feel most at home. What makes you feel most at home? I think the smell of warm chicken noodle soup as opposed to cold chicken noodle soup. That just (laughs) reminds me of home. I feel at home when I'm with my homies Mm -hmm. um, or I can be alone in the middle. Well, no, not super alone in the middle of the woods because I feel like you would would never want to be alone in the middle of the woods. Okay. Cabin in the woods, you know, but not like the movie, not creepy cabin in the woods. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever (laughs) feels like home to you. We're here to talk about it. Well, Olympics are in full gear. I mean, there has been a bit of controversy surrounding, you know, the... A bit. Yeah, the games. But I just, I really hope that they're doing everything they can to keep everyone safe. Locals, the athletes, volunteers, employees. It's so, uh, there's just so much stuff to think about. Like, you want people to be safe, but you also, we're also happy for the athletes who have made it so far. I've always been a huge fan of the Olympics. It makes me... Sort of like even walking to the car, it makes me kind of do it at a better pace, almost like it's my trials to what? get into the next round. I don't know. I'm a nerd like that. And so, uh, yeah, it's, I, I do, do it excited We watching. do race when we um, brush our teeth at night and mm-hmm. like get ready for bed. It's our inner <laughs> Olympian coming out, but I'm sure our guest this week is going to be very excited because the U.S. has already won a fencing medal. Yeah. Pretty exciting. Yeah, Lee Kiefer has won for uh, fencing, won a gold, which is pretty amazing. But I think the U.S. is at 10 medals already, so super excited about that. Have you ever tried fencing? I have once. I don't think I did it properly or very well. Yeah, I have long reach. I have super long arms, so it's handy. You don't even need the the saber. I actually just put a thumbtack on the end of my finger. (laughs) That was my saber. (laughs) Uh, What else did we get up to today? Today, not today, this week. This week. We went uh, for a nice walk at midnight yeah. down in Santa Monica last night. Or not at midnight, but late. Midnight. As, as the sun fell. Were you just like, did you get up out of bed and go for a walk? Yeah, I didn't tell you. I actually went by myself. Well, that's great. fun. And then did you wake up in the morning with muddy feet and then it was the start of a horror movie? What happened? Well, I did have a dream last night that I was walking around a castle uh, with Jonathan and Prince Harry and we walked through mud. So that could have been my muddy oh. feet. But we were just having good times. We were sort of at an airport and then walking around this castle and and catching up like good old times. Uh, So weird dreams. Our brains are amazing things. Uh, What else? I did a float pod this week. Do you want to tell everyone what that is? It's like a sensory deprivation pod where you, it looks like, kind of looks like a tanning bed, but it doesn't like close as much. A tanning bed full of water. A big bathtub with a, um, a cover and it doesn't close all the way for those who are claustrophobic. Um, and you just lay in, you float in the water for about an hour and um, listen to relaxing music. And, and, and you can get disoriented relax. in there when you're relaxed because it's, it's total yeah. darkness and you're listening it. to the music. And then I remember when I first did it, I couldn't find where the, I was looking for the, like, it was like a the light or the, bu- the, light the button. On. Yeah. And I, I, I couldn't find it and I had sort of just floated to an angle a little bit and so then I was all turned around but it is relaxing it's great it's a great way to really sort of silence your inner voice and just concentrate on stillness yeah it took me a while to get back into it because I the last time we did it was what two years ago or a year and a half ago Mm -hmm. Um, so it took me a while but it was really relaxing I always think of that Simpsons episode where Homer's in the float pod I don't remember that I'll have to rewatch it Um, what else um well, we had a couple of birthdays, oh, gosh, uh, so many family birthdays. birthdays this week. So, so fun. Yeah, we're just kind of hanging out with the fam jam and enjoying that company. Yeah. And, and we had a great conversation with this guest. 
Okay, we're, we're going there now. We're going in. Okay. I want to talk I'm about so this. I'm so excited. Our guest is an American saber fencer of the United States fencing team. She is known for being the first Muslim American woman to wear hijab while competing for the United States in the Olympics. And she is a five-time senior world medalist, including the 2014 world champion in the team event. She is somebody who motivates uh, and inspires so many people. Plus, she's an author. She has three books, Proud. There's actually a version for adults and a version for young adults. And then there's The Proudest Blue, a story of hijab and family. And in 2014, Iptihaj and her siblings launched their own clothing company, Luella, which aims to bring modest, fashionable clothing to the U.S. market. And we'll talk more about that at the end of the episode when we highlight our makers. Yes. And I'm also going to point out that every time I look over Linda's shoulder, she's window shopping hmm. on the website. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's time to say hello to Ibtihaj Muhammad. Okay, if ADT wasn't professional enough, now ADT installs Google Nest products with their smart home security systems because ADT believes the smarter the home, the safer the security. I mean, what are they going to do next? They're, they're going to start a country singing career. I would listen to a country band named ADT. Also, I like to know what's happening at our front door from virtually anywhere with my Google Nest doorbell. Just saying. Your Google Nest doorbell? I said our. He said my. Everybody check that. Yeah. All right. Well, I like to control my ADT smart devices like my lights, my locks. <laughs> my security system with Google Nest speakers and displays. And I like to say, hey, Google, to get started. Listen, I said ours. I'm all about ours, not <laughs> mine. Help protect what matters most with all this plus 24-7 professional monitoring from ADT and a little help from Google. Visit ADT.com to see how ADT can help make your home smarter and safer. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you guys? Great. Good. It has been a long time. I'm just remembering the time when we bumped into one another at the airport. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? I do. I feel like I chased you guys. Well, actually... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was walking behind you on a flight and I was like, wait, I know them. I was like, this is weird. But I'm one of those people. I'm like, whatever. The worst thing that could happen is going to be like, we're not who you think we are. Leave us alone. <laughs> like, so friendly. I think we were leaving Toronto for New York. Yes, or something I think like so. that. Going to Toronto or something. Were you on a? Were you on your book tour? Because the very first time we met, you were on your kid's book tour, right? No. So that flight situation was definitely after the Olympics, but I think it was my first book, my memoir. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. But then I saw you guys, I guess, I don't know. We, our books dropped, our children's books dropped the same day. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, well, I don't know what number children's book you're on, but one of your many children's books. Even the adult books are very childish because they come from <laughs> me. So, but uh, yeah, no, it's it's. I just love it when that happens. Though, where you know, certain uh, energies pass. We uh, you know, we kind of keep bumping into each other, and we stayed in touch. And even though you're on the, you were on the East Coast. Now you're on the West Coast. I followed you here. <laughs> uh, thank yes. you. Well, I'm so glad you did. I thought that was so cool. <laughs> I remember after meeting you at the airport that day, I was like, she's so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us a little. We want to dig into your backstory a little bit. So what was life like growing up for you? So I'm from Maplewood, New Jersey. It's about 30 minutes west of New York City, depending on traffic. And um, I'm from a relatively, I think, large family. I'm in the middle of five kids. My mom and my dad both retired. My mom was a school teacher. My dad was a drug detective. And in our family, my parents really um, kept us super active. So if we weren't out, you know, playing, I don't know, games with each other outside, uh, we were watching sports together as a family. And so there was this huge focus on sports growing up and um, having an older brother. I was just grew up like in a very competitive environment, I guess. I wanted to run faster than him, jump higher than him and even though that was difficult because he was just stronger than I was and faster than I was, that didn't really stop me from trying. And um, in this effort to kind of keep me active and engaged, my mom uh, had me in a bunch of different like youth sports. So I have very early memories of our parents putting um, like our town rec book in front of us and letting us pick 
you know, which oh, sport cool. we would try. So mm-hmm. I've played like t-ball and tennis and track and field and volleyball. But for me in each of those different sports, as a kid who would eventually wear hijab, um, which is what you see, um, I, as a Muslim woman, I only expose my face and my hands. And not all Muslim women cover, but those who choose to do, this is kind of how we show up. Mm-hmm. And um, when I would play these different sports as a kid, uh, even when I was super young in track and field, my teammates wore like shorts and tanks. And I remember going to sporting goods stores with my parents to get, you know, tights and a shirt to go underneath that would match the team uniform. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't know. It was a norm for me. I didn't feel like it was strange at all. It was just a little bit different than everyone else. Uh, but at 12 years old, my mom and I were literally in the car at a stoplight and we were next to the local high school, Columbia High School. And we saw athletes in a school cafeteria from the road where we were. They were fully covered. They had on long jackets, long pants. They had on what I thought were helmets and they were fighting with swords. And I remember my mom looking at me and saying, like, I have no idea what that is. But when you get to high school, I want you to try it out. (laughs) And I feel like the rest is just kind of history. I joined my high school team when I turned uh, 13, I guess, that fall when I got to high school. And I never in a million years imagined that um, I would go on to become this professional athlete. It hmm. never occurred to me. It um, never crossed my mind that I would go on to, you know, the Olympics and win a medal. But I feel like uh, fencing was always meant to be in my journey or a part of my story in a way that um, I never could have imagined as a kid. I got to, you know, bronze <laughs> in the Olympics, no big deal. Uh, but there's so much more behind that to get that journey for you. Can you dig in a little bit more? Uh, sort of what roadblocks did you have to overcome as well? When I was growing up, it was really a means to an end for me. I saw fencing as a way to go to a good university. Coming from a large family, having you know parents that worked every day, I knew that um, paying for a $50,000 a year school, if I wanted to have the best school, um, was going to be expensive. So I, when I looked at the top 10 schools in the country, they all had fencing teams. So I was like, oh, such an easy decision. I'm going to fence. Um, I remember trying to like drag my friends to fencing tryouts with me at 13. And um, I had friends that looked like me. They weren't Muslim, but they were also African-American. And like, I remember us standing at the school cafeteria doors and then looking at the sea of like mostly white kids. And they were like, no. um, I was like, that's, I remember like kind of putting my hand on my hip and I was like, well, when I go to a good university, like, um, the joke's going to be on you because this is my ticket. Like I could see it, even though like as a young person, at 13, at 13, I've always been like, so like very like type A always had a plan. Like I grew up going to, um, like uh, medical programs every single summer. Like I just knew what my like life would be. At least I was trying to map it out. I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. Like I was kind of fence. Like there was this plan and it's so interesting. I didn't have much in common with the kids I was fencing with, but there was this immediate draw for me and that this program was the state championship program. Like they had, one of the largest teams at my school, at my high school, there were like over a hundred kids on the fencing team. Wow. Oh, wow! And I think because of this legacy of just talent and being a really strong program, it really created this bond where you didn't have to be the best on the team. You didn't actually have to provide tangible wins for the team. Like you could be the team manager or the team armor who fixed equipment or the person who kept score for the team, or you could actually be like um, the star athlete on the team. Everybody kind of played a role in helping this team be successful. Mm-hmm. And so it created this immediate family dynamic that has always been really consistent um, in my four years there. And I will say like, without having that, I'm not sure I would, have kept fencing. It was just um, a really like comforting space as a young person to be a part of. And Mm. honestly, when I 
in high school, I played softball and I also played volleyball and just being glaringly different from other kids was difficult for me. I Mm. uh, grew up in a, you know, mostly white town. And even though I was with the same kids from kindergarten all the way through uh, 12th grade, when we would go to different schools, you know, we had an away volleyball game or away softball Mm. game. Um, I was maybe the first time other kids had ever seen a kid or a person in hijab. Mm. Um, So there was pushback that existed not just amongst, you know, my competitors, but sometimes even officials or parents. And what I loved about fencing was that even though I was different, when I put my mask on, I kind of had this like superhero feeling that came with it. I love that no one knew what I looked like. They didn't know my gender or my ethnicity or my faith. It was just about how good you could be. That's so incredible how you were able to find that community um, in a sport that, you know, was just a means to an end for you at the time. I mean, it's so crazy to hear that you had that mindset at 13 to be like, well, I'm just going to show you. How do you think your mom and dad um, fostered that mentality in you? You know, my parents are so interesting because um, they're like different in a way where um, I remember the first time I made my first top 16 at a world cup, which is, I mean, to a normal person, it's like, I don't even know what that means. 16 (laughs) doesn't sound great, but I mean, I maybe will like at some point tell the story, but I, my first world cup, I was ranked 250th or something crazy like that. And so to make this climb in professional sport and, you know, uh, reach my first top 16, I remember when I came home, my mom had met me at the airport with sweet 16 balloons and like flowers. And my dad was like, well, who won? You know? So (laughs) I think that um, there was always this, uh, this kind of dynamic in our family where, you know, there's, you have more left in the tank, you know, like you could, you can be better. Like this isn't, acceptable. (laughs) Like even bringing home an A minus when we were growing up was like the end of the world. Um, we didn't watch television during the week. We would watch like, what is it? Um, like Nick at night or whatever on the weekends. Like it was just very by the book and you had to show up academically if you wanted any chance of showing up athletically. So, um, I feel like my parents were kind of rigid in that way, but as someone who kind of enjoys, I think the challenge and that chase of performing better, whether that be athletically or academically, I didn't mind it. Mm-hmm. Beyond performance though, I just, it sounds like you were so sure of yourself and the way you showed up no matter what sport you're, you were in. Or did you ever feel like, oh, I need to change the way I, I look or like my faith or, or anything because of the way you were treated? Um, it sounds like you were so steadfast in your own um, beliefs, even at such a young age. And Yeah, I mean, a lot of people at that young age are very vulnerable or very susceptible to just peer, peer pressure. pressure. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, sometimes I wonder like where that, where that stems from. Like I remember being bullied and having a hard time, not just with kids I didn't know, but even sometimes in my friend circle, like I had a group of really close girlfriends in high school and there were four or five of us total. And, um, when I think back on some of the things that even like friends would say, like as an adult, I know that like, that's not what a friend would like Mm -hmm. should say to you or would say to you, but Um, I don't know. I just had something about being one of one in a space all the time kind of forces you to develop a a thicker skin. Mm. And it's like a sink or swim. You know, you can allow other people's words to consume you and to disable you in a way that you're not able to move forward or you can use them as fuel to chase down the things that you want in life and to prove other people wrong. And I don't know, I just kind of like the idea of people not expecting anything of me because it's Mm -hmm. like, well, you have no idea what I'm capable of and I'm going to show you. 
I think that you can teach yourself how to show up for yourself, right? Mm -hmm. It's not something that could necessarily come to us all naturally, but we can all teach ourselves how to show up for ourselves, how to be our own biggest cheerleaders and not necessarily rely on the people around us or the things around us to keep us motivated and keep us going. For you growing up, it's, it's really amazing to see because here you have your Muslim, you're a woman and you're a woman of color. And I think there are a lot of things there where you think there's systemic prejudice and racism that would be in front of you almost every single day. Yet to be able to, as a kid, have that shield um, and not, or at least not let them penetrate you to distract you from what you want is just amazing. It's just, it, it blows my mind. And I think I, from the outside looking in, I, I don't even know if you know how inspiring you and your story is for so many people out there. And I think your, like your children's book as well, I think is a really great uh, tool for people too to, to read and learn. I, I appreciate that. You know, it's, we don't realize um, our own power and the things that, you know, we have. And I wish that I had an athlete who looked like me when I was growing up. I feel like it would have made my journey so much easier. And even though I think my professional journey through sport was just riddled with so many different obstacles, um, I always saw this light and the light was that there would be more people who look like me at some point. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like I had to keep going because I had to create space. And that was just always my mission. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying there too, representation is such an important thing for people, having role models, somebody to look up to. And I thought it was really interesting to hear too, how you ended up doing a collaboration with Barbie, with Mattel. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, tell us a little bit about that or, or other ways that you've been able to help bring that representation for young women. Um, so that Mattel is like, I mean, a dream. I don't know <laughs> if you like played with Barbies growing up, but oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So like Barbies were just either something you did or you didn't do. Like doll play was a huge part of my life as a kid. And I always like to say that I played with dolls to escape an older brother who would like terrorize me. So um, I would spend hours playing with dolls and probably like um, for an uncomfortably long time until I was like 15, <laughs> I was playing with dolls. But even though I had this like three story doll house that had like a pool on the roof and a Corvette and I had, I don't know, dozens and dozens of dolls. Um, I didn't have any dolls that wore hijab. And my mom was really intentional about the dolls she purchased for me and my sisters. We, our dolls were all, uh, had the same skin color as us. And um, so if I went to a toy store and, you know, there were two black dolls on the shelves and I already had them, I went home with nothing. Whereas mm -hmm. so my brother would like, you know, get whatever toy he wanted. I didn't get anything because I already had those two dolls on the shelves. Um, so when Mattel um, first told me that I would, you know, have the Shiro Barbie and um, the, this collection is essentially a barrier-breaking women who are doing um, something amazing in their fields and they have like Ava DuVernay, like Yara Shahidi, um, Ashley Graham, like there's all these cool people that have Barbie. So that was exciting for me because I know what Barbie meant to me growing up. But um, I remember the day that I was uh, at Mattel headquarters here in SoCal and they told me that my doll would be produced and go to market and people could purchase my doll. I cried like big tears <laughs> <laughs> and I wear eyeliner generally. So they were like, there was eyeliner running. Messy tears, messy um, tears. And it was just a moment for me to kind of reflect on those different times where I was made to feel different and, you know, people wanted me to feel uncomfortable. And I was like, this is so cool that my journey is now inspiring, you know, this Barbie that is Mattel's first fencer. That's also Mattel's first Barbie in hijab. And even just the process of creating the doll was so fun because it was about things that are really important to me, like representation and inclusion I wanted my Barbie to have not this like standard, you know, stick figure frame. Mm -hmm. I know that I was made fun of as a kid for having like larger legs. And now I'm like really proud of my legs. I'm like these legs won me an Olympic medal. So yeah. I wanted my Barbie to have like curvier legs, athletic legs. 
And um, I wanted her hijab to be perfect. She had to have perfect eyebrows and I wanted her to have wing liner. And it was just a fun process. Um, but the my favorite thing about the entire process was just that this was an intentional effort by a company, you know, at the height of a very tumultuous political time in our country mm-hmm. to kind of choose inclusivity and choose change. I just thought was revolutionary. Yeah, it's great. Setting a great example. Yeah. That's so fun. What a dream come true. Can you do a Barbie? Oh my gosh, I would love to design a Barbie. I, I remember when I was a kid, I'm like, if I ever did something like that, I'm like, I'm going to get bigger arms. Oh, I'll no, get myself. I, like, I'm like, but now now I'm, I'm good. They I'm should good. have a short Barbie, short oh. Asian. Like To clarify, I never played with dolls. I played with Barbies because I'm terrified of dolls. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. But yeah, Barbies, I would only have the white ones because I never thought about it. Yeah. And I never, it just never crossed my mind. And it, it was the norm, you know, like, gosh, why did they have such long, thin legs? Mine are so short. And I thought they were so short and stubby. And like, that was the mentality we grew up with. And then you get older and you're like, that's just messed up. So when, when a company can evolve and do something so intentional, that's not just performative. It is such a, a step in like a positive direction. I mean, even when we look back on like our childhood and the things that we used to watch, right? Yeah. The things that we always see portrayed on television through Hollywood or media or whatever it is, it's that was the norm. And it, I think that we're living in such a cool time where things are changing. Yeah. And there's a better representation of each of us, not just, um, you know, in our day to day, but also in the things that we see and consume on television. Mm-hmm. So question though, um, you've mentioned uh, your mom only allowed you to play uh, with brown dolls. Mm -hmm. And so when you had your own doll though, was that like, was your mom over the moon proud of you being able to represent? Um, I don't know. My mom has a great poker face. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) My family celebrated my Olympic medal for like that like that's how fast it really? all fly. Oh yeah, they don't care. They're like, whatever. Whatever, if you ask. My mom oh. is telling me to get a job. I'm like, oh what? This is my job. This is oh my, my job. Oh. Yeah, they're kind of traditional. Yeah, but but I mean, there's something to talk about too. You and your sister um, started a business. I mean, talk a bit more about that back in 2014. Yeah, so my sisters and I, uh, my sister's Asiyan Faiza, uh, we started our clothing company, Luella, named after my grandmother. And mm-hmm. it was really born out of necessity. I remember for a long time, especially as a public figure within the Muslim community, if I had an event um, and I needed a dress, as a modest dressing person, I would look for long sleeve maxi dresses and they were impossible to find. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of buying things from overseas, paying these exorbitant prices for things that you would only wear once or twice. And um, I wanted to bring modest, affordable fashion to the United States market. And it was something that I had no idea what I was doing. I literally created this pitch deck and I pitched it to my mom's sister, my aunt, And she like went for it and like gave me the seed money to start my own clothing company. And um, it's been such a labor of love. It is so hard to run your own business, as you guys know, even just to get it off the ground. But when you really believe in something and its mission and just hopefully making the lives easier by giving people access to conscious clothing that is not only modest and affordable, but also fashionable. Mm-hmm. Like there are other modest clothing companies out there, but I think that my stuff is really cute. I don't know. It feels like groundbreaking in a way because not everybody makes their stuff here in the U S and is thinking about the communities that they affect when they, you know, make their clothes. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. well, we'll share a link to Luella as well, just so people can see, but congrats to you. I love seeing siblings that can work together. Oh yeah. Yeah. And when you're able to work on something as meaningful as, as you are, 
to fill a real need to make people feel seen and everyday things like the clothes we wear. Mm -hmm. We don't need to be reminded day in and day out how different we are just because of what's available or not available. Mm -hmm. I think it's amazing what you've done. And also that we can like change our communities, right? And the work that we do. I'm really passionate about giving back to the community in in any way that I can. I feel like I'm very intentional about the, the projects that I'm a part of and the work that I do. And Um, I love that I'm able to even connect with our consumer to help them do that as well. ADT now professionally installs Google Nest products with their smart home security systems because ADT believes the smarter the home, the safer the security. Help protect what matters most with 24-7 professional monitoring from ADT and a little help from Google. You said that very professionally. I try. (laughs) Visit ADT.com to see how ADT can help you make your home smarter and safer. You're a sports ambassador, and I know you you work with uh, women and girls to empower them through sports initiatives with the Olympics. By the time this airs, we'll be in the uh, in the thick of it with the Olympics. Are you going to be involved? Yeah, so um, I've been hosting like a ton of podcasts and things uh, for NBC. I'm host of um, my new favorite Olympian. Uh, there's a really amazing series through Audible um, called Rebel Girls, and it's all about Olympic athletes of the past who have paved the way for women like me to exist. So whether it's um, Nadia Comaneci, who I'm sure we all know and love, um, there's a cool like BMX rider who will be participating in her first games in Tokyo. But um, that was fun project to work on. And I'll also be uh, hosting and commentating my first Olympic games. So, Oh my gosh, cool. Yeah. Um, to be on the opposite side of the camera uh, will be interesting to say the least, but I'm really looking forward to it. Are you, so are you nervous if this is your first time hosting? I mean, that's, that's exciting. That's really exciting. I'm petrified. (laughs) (laughs) Petrified. Um, But also again, really excited. Like I'm pretty sure I'll be the first woman to commentate fencing at the Olympic games. The first Women of color, for sure. Um, I'm all about, you know, knocking down doors and hopefully creating space for other people. So I'm excited. Can you talk a bit about um, your work as a sports ambassador for the U.S. Department of States, empowering women and girls through sport initiative? That is the longest name ever. (laughs) Um, So I've been a sports ambassador for quite a while now. I think since 2012, that initiative um, was first named by former Secretary Clinton. And it was really cool to travel to different regions of the world to talk about sport, to see how these different countries like Venezuela or Russia or Senegal are implementing sports to these underprivileged, underserved communities to kind of change um, these communities from the inside out. And to be completely honest, that entire um, council And our efforts just kind of came to a complete halt during the Trump administration. Um, I was also named to the president's uh, council as well by President Obama. And literally, we did nothing during during the Trump administration. But it's actually really good to know because there are all of these programs and initiatives. But like we don't, you know, once the initial marketing campaign is like rolled out, like we don't really know like what happens and like what yeah. work is actually being done. So it's, it's nice to hear. No, yeah, it's really, it's really unfortunate. I remember the day I got the call for the president's council and it was really exciting. So it was um, the president's council on fitness, health and nutrition. There were a bunch of really cool athletes that were part of this and just coming off the heels of the women and girls through sports initiative. I was just excited to hit the ground and do these mm-hmm. different you know, projects with the State Department and this time uh, with the President's Council. And that happened the day before President Obama left office. And I got a phone call like the day after Trump won by someone. And they're like, were you ever sworn in? And I said, no. And they're like, the phone went dead. Like they hung up. What? <laughs> like, that was the end of that. <laughs> that is so sad. And that's it's, it? It's sad. That's it. That was it. That was the end of that. 
Um, but I work um, still my drive and passion for nonprofit work is still really strong. I work very closely as a global ambassador with the Special Olympics. And um, that's been a lot of fun. I've been doing that for, I guess, three years now. And just to see how sport changes the lives of different mm-hmm. communities is just a lot of fun for me because I know what sport has done for me and how it's totally changed the trajectory of my life. So mm-hmm. being involved with that organization and also, also Athletes for Impact here in Southern California, yep. um, Athletes for Impact is a nonprofit that's meant to help professional athletes find their footing in activism. Mm-hmm. So it's been such so much fun to be a part of, especially over the past year with this movement for Black Lives or even for AAPI mm-hmm. and just really trying to help athletes understand the pivotal role they play in social justice movements. Well, I, honestly, I mean, you really are the superheroes out there that inspire the younger generation. When you think of, you know, kids pretending to be Superman or Wonder Woman or whatever it might be. I know growing up for me too, I was trying to, I was looking up to those Olympic athletes and, and wanting to be them. They were the superheroes. Mm-hmm. And I think the the beautiful thing about what we're able to share now with all the platforms that we have is what you're talking about. The, the possibility for athletes or anyone with a voice, which is everyone, um, to be able to speak up about other things that they care about. Like you're not just an athlete. You're not just a teacher. You're not just a mom. You are so many other things, which brings people together. Yeah, I actually have a question. That This is something that I've actually dealt with. Uh, Do you ever come across a lot of negativity when you're trying to voice um, your thoughts where people try and say, you're an athlete, just do your athlete thing and don't do anything else? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the age old shut up and dribble that, you know, LeBron got a few years ago from... Mm. I don't know, like that news commentator or whoever it was. But um, I remember when I qualified for the games, I qualified for the Olympics during the height of the 2016 presidential election. And as someone who was vis- who's visibly Muslim, like the U.S. team's first visible Muslim uh, who wore hijab, um, this was during, you know, these proposed Muslim bans as well then proposed Muslim bans, which ended up actually happening. But a lot of my questions during the games were political questions where my teammates didn't have to worry about any of those questions. You know, they just kind of got to go compete, you know, answer, you know, the same kind of questions about competition or about their family or whatever it is. My questions were always really, really difficult to answer. And For me, I felt like this was my moment to change the narrative for my communities that I'm Mm. a part of. And the Muslim community has always, you know, gotten a bad rap. We have been, I think, mislabeled and misunderstood for far too long. And to show up authentically, you know, as myself, as this African-American woman who was born here in the States, have no attachment to any other country and am very comfortable in saying, I choose to wear hijab. This is a personal Mm -hmm. choice. I'm happy with who I am. There's not an oppressive bone in my body. No one's forcing me to wear hijab. I'm not Arabic. I'm not Arab. I don't speak Arabic. And just kind of um, really, I think, knocking down all these different stereotypes Mm -hmm. that exist and misconceptions that mm-hmm. people have about Muslims and specifically Muslim women, I felt like was really liberating. Mm-hmm. And um, as difficult as that time was and having to be at the Olympics and answer all these politically driven questions, you know, people asking the strangest questions about whether or not you feel safe in America. And it's like, well, you know, sometimes no, I don't always feel safe in America. And I think that these events that have happened, especially over the last year, have proven all those things to be very true for Mm -hmm. someone who looks like me. But it's amazing that like the way you just spoke about it just now, I love that you took it as a challenge and an opportunity um, 
more so than an attack. Like, I'm not sure how the questions were intended, but it's amazing that like the strength of your mindset was able to see it as, you know, this is again, another opportunity for me to speak to something more than just the sport. Mm. I mean, you know, and uh, Drew, you touched on this a bit earlier, but systemic racism like bleeds into sport, like Mm -hmm. no other. And even in the way I think black athletes are interviewed is a lot different from, you Mm. know, our teammates and our white counterparts. And we see that happening even right now in just the coverage of the Olympic games and someone like Simone Biles, for example, who is arguably, you know, one of the greatest athletes of all time and her being, um, I think penalized for being so good. And I know that I'm held to like a different standard than my teammates. Like I've realized Mm -hmm. that what I always maintained and said about black athletes is that we have to be exceptional in order to be accepted. So there's a very fine line we have to walk. You're not allowed to make mistakes. And when you do, you're vilified. So it's something that we're very aware of. Um, At least I think the ones like on top, like we know that there's a tight line, you, there's no room for error. And, um, it's not easy like at all by any stretch of the imagination. But again, it's like, you've worked really hard for this and you don't want a small mishap to derail something that you've literally spent your entire life, you know, building. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, when you're in the public eye, it, you're right. It's, you're walking a tightrope. Because uh, there are a lot of people out there that are just looking to take you down from that position that you're in. You, you've mentioned that you never loved fencing. Yeah. It wasn't like your ultimate sport. Was that when you were younger and, and you got more into it? Or have you always felt that way? Um, and if that's the case, what's your favorite, what's your favorite Olympic sport to watch <laughs> then? Oh, man. Favorite Olympic sport? I don't know. Um, I love track and field. Just... Uh, seeing that someone can get around a track in like 10 seconds, which I'm like, I can't even get out of bed to the shower in 10 seconds. I don't know how they made it around that track. Um, I grew up as just an Olympic kid. My mom's sister worked for NBC Sports. Hmm. And so every two years, she was off to an Olympic Games, whether that was Beijing or... I don't know, Salt Lake City, Atlanta, like wherever it was, we always had this connection to the games because um, we had a family member who was going. We always rooted for Team USA, no matter what sport we were watching. Um, And then also we always got all the apparel, like the Mm. NBC sports apparel, Mm. Olympic apparel. So always been connected to the games, love watching it. Uh, And to be honest, I just like the energy that comes with the games. Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys have a favorite sport to watch? Oh yeah, gymnastics. Yeah, uh, yeah. I wanted to be a gymnast and so growing and up, track and track. Yeah, so growing up, I loved track. Um, my parents would always have whether it was winter or summer Olympics, they would have it on. But their big thing was always the figure skating, and mm-hmm. I, it, it was very artistic and nice. But that wasn't. I was like, okay, let's get on to the summer Olympics because I just love summer sports. Right. Uh, ba- basketball, volleyball, track, all of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that gymnastics, this, I don't know if there's five this year, there might be six, but this is one of the most diverse gymnastics teams that we've seen in a long time. Oh, great. Well, that's yeah. cool. Yeah, I, I've always said to, you know, we, we have no time in our schedule for extra things, but I, I've always said, you know, maybe I'm just going to try and get away during the Olympics for a little bit just to, you know, help somehow. I'll volunteer and do something. I just want to be around that kind of energy, oh. that athletic energy. So LA 2028. This is it. I'm booking that entire two weeks off. I'm just going to sit here. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to do something. Even if I just have to, you know, I don't know. If it's tennis, I'll just be the ball boy or something like that. Whatever it has to be. The ball boys and girls are amazing. Mm -hmm. They're so fast and they just get out of the way. That's a new sport. (laughs) You would be so good as a color commentator. You have to pitch it. Well, I don't know what that is. Wait, what, is, is, is a color, a color commentator? Color, so a color commentator is essentially someone who can, you know, tell the stories of the athlete or oh, something cool. like that. <gasps> yeah. Like you, you wouldn't be the play-by-play for tennis. No shade to your tennis skill. But I <laughs> oh, trust me. 
I'll throw the shade to my tennis skills. Out of all sports I have ever attempted, tennis is the one that I am just not good at yet. But, well, uh, I, I started to play tennis recently, and I will say, like, my love for Serena just, like, skyrocketed. I already yeah. loved her, like, huge Serena fan. But in yeah. trying to play it, I'm like, oh, my God, this sport is so hard. It is. It is. I also love too when you have two siblings that have also made it to such an elite level. I mean, I in, in one sport, that's pretty amazing. Um, and but, I must say that they're the nicest professional athletes that I've ever met. Amazing. Oh, yay. Yeah. One that's day, always nice to hear. Serena Venus, if you're listening, we want to meet you. So let's talk. Um, we, Serena yeah, we Venus forever home. I see it. Oh, you know, so Serena Venus Celebrity, celebrity IOU. I see oh, it. cute! Oh, I love that. <laughs> so, well, we we uh, like to wrap up our conversations with a speed round. If you're ready, speaking love of it. speed and agility, yes. this is our <laughs> Olympic speed round. Okay, for the gold, I'm ready. Yeah, what meal makes you feel at home, and who cooked it? So on Sundays, my mom would always like cook because she's a working mom. So she would cook like literally like five or six different things and like half of them would go in the freezer so she could have them for the week. What song reminds you of home? We used to grow up listening to CD 101.9. My mom was like jazz obsessed. So I really love Sade. I don't know any of the names of her songs offhand, but um, maybe it's like Smooth Operator. Is that her? Yeah. Smooth Operator. Okay, good. Smooth Operator. (laughs) All right. Hopefully this is easier. What's your perfect Sunday morning at home? Perfect Sunday morning at home is a bike ride um, through the Strand. So Santa Monica to Manhattan Beach, perfect Sunday morning. Amazing. Yeah. Most vivid memory of home? Playing in the pool as kids. We would Mm. get in first thing in the morning and stay until our like fingers wrinkled. (laughs) (laughs) All pruney. All right. What are three things? Name three things on your bedside table. My charger, a bottle of water, and my phone. Necessities. All right. Yeah, that's all I thought. Were you looking for something super interesting? You never no. know. We, we never we've know. Had, we've had someone say um, a printer. She what? kept a printer on her bedside table. And sometimes they're <laughs> like working a, mom. Yeah. I'm such a minimalist, so no. Okay. Uh, most memorable growth moment? Definitely failing to qualify for my first Olympic team. It mm. was a moment that I, I knew other people who also didn't qualify and I saw it, how it just, I mean, it seemed to break them. Mm. And for me, it was like, I used it as just motivation. I it was like, I'm going to do everything I need to do over the next four years to qualify for this next Olympic team. So I think that it was probably the biggest growth moment that I've ever had because it was like I had an epiphany, like mm-hmm. that you, you can do this. You just have to be willing to, you know, put in the hard work. Mm-hmm. Well, you definitely have that determination for it from everything we've heard. Last uh, speed round question. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given and who gave it to you? Um, so it's also sports related. I, uh, just in having a, a relatively arduous journey through sport, um, I faced a lot of obstacles with coaches or even teammates and just this having, not having a sense of belonging, you know, being made to feel as if I was just not a fixture on Team USA and I was on the team for like eight years. Mm. But um, I remember as we're leading up to the Olympic qualifications, I said to my mentor, Peter Westbrook, who is like a, this, I don't know, fencing great. He's like half Japanese, half African-American and um, a 1988 bronze medalist in Seoul. Mm -hmm. But anyway, he said to me, um, or I said to him rather, you know, what if, what if they don't choose me? What if I'm not selected to go to the games? And he reminded me that things are not in our hands, you know, that, Everything that happens as a person of faith, I believe that everything, you know, that that happens is meant to be and it's written by God. And we're just, you know, out here to to do our best and the things will happen as they're supposed to. So for me, that was a very freeing moment to hear that from him. And it just reminded me to kind of hold on to this rope of faith. And it has led me to where I am today. 
Amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. And uh, we're definitely getting together now that we know you're here in California. Yeah. We're going to have to get together at some point. One, we have to do some fencing. That This is selfish for me, but I just, I do love it. And I think I've that never you would it. actually be good at fencing. You'd be surprised because there's so many, di- there's three different weapons. So for your height, you'd be great in epee. And I think Linda, for your like petite, like size, you'd probably a great foilist because you have very little target. Mm. Wait, Ooh. There yeah. you go. Fo- can hide. You can foil it. I was always <laughs> wondering too that uh, saber fencing. I always thought like, is that my nerdy Star Wars side? Is that like the lightsaber was was brought to life out of the saber fencing? Is that well, that's from? a good question. I'm a saber fencer and I've always thought of myself as a superhero, which is why Barbie makes sense. But <laughs> we're like the closest to like swashbuckling or Zorro because we use slashing motions to score our points. Oh. The other weapons use a point. We're yeah. like slashing. Oh. I just, I picture me being like that guy, you know, using the point, but I'm the one that like, I'm r- way far back with my long arms and long legs. And then I lunge forward really long and tap the person and turn my back right away and walk around with arrogance. Like I just did that, everybody. <laughs> like you see in the movies, they always have that one arrogant guy who like walks around, he doesn't even look, he knows he scored. That'll be me. Um, yeah, and you'll see those in, in Tokyo, the games. They exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, all the um, best. Thank, you, thank so you so much for taking the time to chat. Thanks, guys. Nice to see you. Isn't she lovely? She's amazing. I love chatting with her. And I also so love, cool. I, I forgot the random meet at the airport. Yeah. And just sort of bumping into her in random spots here and there. It makes me smile when I think of just bumping into her. Every week we like to highlight a maker and this Woo-hoo! week we are highlighting Ibtahaj because she has her brand Luella. It's a family owned and operated modest fashion brand founded right here in the US by the one and only Ibtahaj. Woohoo! That's two woohoos in under a minute. <laughs> Luella is a fashion brand that is fresh, vibrant, affordable and modest and functional and stylish and all the things. All those good things. It's not only filling a void within the fashion industry, but it's changing our communities as well. I think that that's really great mm-hmm. and all consciously made in the USA. Yeah. Um, I saw their mosaic kimono set and I want it. Uh, well, you, <laughs> you, so you shouldn't, cool. you shouldn't buy it. it. No, you shouldn't buy it. What? Because what? I already got it for you. You did? What? No, you never heard anything. I um, uh, just don't really? check the mail the next few days. Oh my gosh. I'm just going to sleep in that and slink around in that. We're going to put some links. You should see my shoulder moves right now. She's slinking right now. (laughs) We're going to put a link in the show notes for everybody. Um, Check it out. And a huge thank you to our homies, Brandon Angelino. Annalie Bell. Hannah Fan, Courtney Iwanis. Wes Friend. Chris Cobain. Jessica Bryant-Harvey. And Nicole Schachter. Our theme music for At Home is by Victoria Shaw and Chad Carlson. And music is composed and produced by Rick Russo. Thank you so much for listening. And if you do enjoy our podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate us. Always rate us. We love you rating and commenting. Yeah, we actually like your feedback. And to you, thank you. Thank you. Love you. Love you. ADT now professionally installs Google Nest products with their smart home security systems because ADT is awesome and believes that the smarter the home, the safer the security. I can't wait to see what they do next. They're going to put Google Nest doorbells on the moon. (laughs) Actually, I like to know what's happening at our front door from virtually anywhere with our Google Nest doorbell. I do love how when we're out at dinner, we can see exactly what's going on at the front door. And we can control our ADT smart devices like... Lights, locks, the security system with Google Nest speakers and displays. Mm -hmm. All you have to say is, hey, Google, to get started. Well, I think it's great for people to help protect what matters most with all of this. Plus, 24-7 professional monitoring from ADT and a little help from Google. Visit ADT.com to see how ADT can help make your home smarter and safer. Hey, Google.